Welcome to this episode of Church Grammar. On today's episode, Dan Trier returns, and we talk about the past, present, and future of the theological interpretation of Scripture movement or conversation, or however you want to label it. So this is part three of the conversation. So if you haven't listened to my conversation on TIS with Madison Pierce and Chad Spellman, you might want to do that, as this one reflects a lot on those conversations and some things that we introduce in those previous episodes. So I hope you'll enjoy my conversation with Dan. As always, we're brought to you by B&H Academic. You can go to bhacademic.com to find out more about their latest offerings, monographs, books, and textbooks. We're also brought to you by the Christian Standard Bible. Go to csbible.com to find out more about that English Bible translation. And now, my conversation with Dan Trier. But first, no big deal. We are in part three of the conversation on theological interpretation of scripture. Uh, this was actually an unplanned part three, but Dan Trier was kind enough to uh, want to be involved in this conversation, probably because we name dropped you over or under 42 times in the last two parts. So if nothing else, you've come on to clear up some omissions and some uh, maybe some some clear mis- misrepresentations. I appreciate you coming on and doing that. Well, you know, I get so many texts from Brandon these days that I should answer at least some of them. That's true. That's true. Well, you know, email, I might get back in a week. Text messages, if I send you seven to eight text messages in a row, I might get one in, in you know, 12 hours. So, yeah, you know, just trying well, to, I'm just trying I, to learn. I'm slowly coming along with the younger generation. <laughs> well, you did initiate. I, I was, I felt, I noticed the one time you initiated a text message to me, I was like, okay, Dan is not totally opposed to texting. So this is a great start. So being dragged, kicking and screaming into the 21st century. All right. Well, before we get into the TIS conversation, We've got to talk about Detroit sports. That, that is a, this is your third time on Church Grammar. We've talked about it every time. Something major has happened since last time we talked, which is that your Detroit Lions have traded uh, Matthew Stafford for Jared Goff. Uh, how are you feeling about that as a Lions fan? Well, first of all, I'm just speculating here that the massive audience size of the Church Grammar podcast is not due <laughs> to me talking about Detroit sports. Never know. I, I realize I'm out on a limb there, but um, I actually feel good about the trade uh, from the standpoint of kicking the tires on Jared Goff for a couple of years, letting us be patient to draft our next quarterback, or maybe even already having our next quarterback and getting a bunch of draft picks. That's all good. I like Matthew Stafford having a chance at being on a winner and uh, being a Detroit Lion doesn't qualify for that. So I'm happy for him. But the part of me that grew up with a player sticking on a team for their entire career, and that's what it means to be a Detroit player, mm-hmm. is obviously sad to see him go. Yeah, you're, you're kind of like where us Cowboys fans were with Tony Romo, where it's like, I love him so much. I, I'd be happy to see him go win somewhere else just because I love him so much. Yeah. It's probably not going to happen here. Yeah, the, the alternative is that uh, Matthew Stafford retires early like Barry Sanders because he's so frustrated. So at least that didn't happen, right? <laughs> yes. And so. uh Starts, you know, into the cannabis business like that. <laughs> well, that's uh, that's still illegal in Ohio, so you know, no uh, value judgments. But um, yeah, that's oh, it's I, a. I'm, I have my own value judgment. <laughs> yeah, me too. Me too. Um, so let's talk about TIS. Um, this is no secret to you. I'm sure I've mentioned on the podcast before. You're introducing 
theological interpretation was, was a huge uh, book for me. Uh, in my master's program, I was in a theological method and prolegomena class. That was one of the books that was assigned alongside Lindbeck and Fry and all kinds of other books. And uh, that was the one that after I read all of them, I was like, this is the thing I've been thinking about. I've been trying to do. I've been wanting to do. And nobody's given me permission to do it until uh, Daniel J. Trier gave me permission and the church fathers, of course. So that's, uh, you know, I don't do math. That's why I do uh, Bible. Uh, but that's about, what, 13 years uh, since it was published. So let's kind of start there. What are some of your thoughts um, as you think through having published that book, uh, hearing, you know, myself and Madison reflect on it, Chad and I reflect on it. I'm sure you've heard other people reflect on it and write reviews over the years. What are some of your kind of initial thoughts about where you started with this project of TIS and kind of where it's gone? I don't know if I communicated one aspect of that uh, project very clearly, given some of the feedback I received, but it, it was not Dan Trier's manifesto for what <laughs> he thinks TIS should be, pure mm. and simple. Though it has been read that way, you know, and every reference to allegorical exegesis therein has been <laughs> attached to me as if I were granting it approval and so on. What the book was trying to do is obey Mark Knoll. There were these discussions of biblical theology and theological hermeneutics and in this new terminology of TIS, and somebody needed to draw a map for particularly people like him who were interested and for whom it might have implications in the wider landscape of Christian learning who were not necessarily specialists, um, but who needed to know in an approachable way what these kinds of hermeneutical discussions were about. So it was a mapping exercise in which I was trying to describe and analyze as carefully as possible what people who were explicitly associated with theological exegesis, theological interpretation of the Bible, or TIS language, what explicit association with that might mean. So as people have pointed out, there are figures subsequently associated with it or more broadly associated with it in terms of relevance that are not really there, like Richard Hayes. And there are some people or ideas mentioned because they are somewhere uh, connected to that language that we might not think of as flying the TIS flag. But I was really trying to do a semi-exegetical historical accounting of the recent renewal of this language. And I still think that that kind of care has value. And I do think you can obviously read between the lines and figure out aspects of TIS that I'm very appreciative of. But in the first instance, it wasn't just Dan Trier's manifesto for TIS. And that's probably worth, worth saying because it would then color some evaluations I would have of what happened. Are there any, um, omissions, errors that were attributed to you in the last two parts of the Church Grammar podcast? I'd like to give you a chance um, to, to clear up here now. You know, I poked at you, I don't know, email or text somehow um, that, you know, podcasts are not my genre. <laughs> um, they're kind of, you know, free flowing and conversational. Whereas, you know, as an author and a doctoral supervisor, I'm usually agonizing over words for hours, you know, and wanting to pick just the right one and I'm as interested in what I do not say as mm. in what I do say. And then, you know, 
you hear yourself described in a podcast and you think, was that really exactly, you know, <laughs> the way I would have wanted to characterize that? So Tom Wright has this kind of memorable phrase about one of the symposia dedicated to him that he was only tempted to pick up his phone and call a lawyer once. <laughs> and uh, I can tell you and, and Madison and Ched that I, I was never tempted to pick up the phone and, and call the lawyer. So that's the good news. But I also, you know, had a few times when it's like, that is not exactly the way I would have tried to say that. Mm. Uh, yeah, I don't have any specific bones to pick with church grammar. I think that the couple of items that more generally have been pointed out with the ITIS book, particularly by uh, Walter Moberly and Marcus Bachmuel, would be number one, should we use the word movement? Or if we do, how technical a sense of the word movement applies to TIS. Uh, so I probably would repent of that word. Mm. Um, I'm not sure there's a massively better word, but there certainly is no TIS union card that has really specific criteria on it. I was gonna say, it's hard to call it a movement if there's uh, 46 streams, right? Dialogue isn't the right word either because that is a semi-formal term in ecumenical circles. Conversation uh, might be the best word, but it sounds a little flabby and free-flowing too. Mm -hmm. like a so podcast. somewhere between a movement and a conversation, um, an impetus or a project or I, I don't know. But anyway, so that, that, that would be one lacuna or potential mistake. Um, certainly a lacuna that I... 100% agree with Moberly about is Jewish exegesis does not get much play mm. in the ITIS book, and it deserves much more. It influenced Brevard Childs, who obviously plays a father figure kind of role to, to streams of the TIS world. And Moberly himself and others continue to interact with Jewish exegesis in a major way. And, um, as complicated as that is, all of us should be doing so, regardless of exactly how we're going to account for that theologically. And then relatedly, I think the third issue that both Bachmuel and Moberly flagged up at SBL in different ways is the confessional slash Trinitarian question, you know, does TIS in the spectrum for which I and the dictionary Van Hooser and I did um, account the the TIS spectrum that we account for. Does it load the dice too much in uh, specifically Trinitarian or confessional ways? And mm -hmm. there's discussion of that even in the new JTI uh, symposium that that one of you mentioned along the way, which was helpful to look at. So that that's an ongoing question, I think. Yeah, I think the that's where I was joking with you beforehand. You know, we talk about the Yale School and the Durham School, and then we talked several times about the Van Hooser Trier School. And I asked you what you thought about having a, a school dedicated to you in the in the TIS world. But I think there is something helpful there that you guys do that is confessional and doctrinal, and, and why I think many of us, uh, particularly you know Protestant evangelicals, are drawn toward your particular account because there is this ontology of Scripture. There's this Trinitarian aspect to it. So. If you want to maybe uh, come back around a little bit and talk about the Yale School, the Durham School, kind of what they are and what they aren't. We, we touched on that a little bit uh, in the other podcast, but I think it'd be good to hear 
uh, somebody like you, who's just really well-versed in this, who has been through, you know, most of this yourself, how would you characterize them? And then perhaps, uh, is it fair to say in light of that, that there is a Van Hooser, uh, trier school as, as, uh, humbly as you could possibly, uh, affirm that. <laughs> <laughs> well, the Yale school is notoriously difficult to define depending on whether you approach it broadly or narrowly. So if you, if you define Yale school, in a way that includes Brevard Childs and the canonical approach, uh, you're going to get different inflections than if you define Yale School primarily around the quote-unquote post-liberal theology of Fry and Lindbeck. So you face an, a kind of immediate fork in the road there. And then you've got David Kelsey, who is still living and writing, who also could qualify as Yale School in a really broad definition. And that adds either an extension of the fry Lindbeck fork or still another fork in the road. Nick Walterstorff, when he was at Trinity a few years ago and Trinity Wheaton faculty members uh, were invited to dinner, to share dinner together around the concert lectures a few times. And on Walterstorff's visit, uh, he was reflecting on the so-called Yale school and said that he felt particularly fry and Lindbeck, but also Kelsey, lacked the confidence to make first order theological claims because they were worried that being explicitly Christian and uh, theologically confessional would be somewhere between not influential and detrimental to them in the broader Yale University environment. Yeah. And so he felt that they were um, self-censoring. Um, somewhat unnecessarily or to an unnecessary degree. And so you wound up in their writings with tons of quote-unquote second-order uh, analysis, but not much, if any, first-order theological claims being made. I mention that to say that I think one of the chief differences between the Yale folks and the Durham folks is the U.S. versus U.K. university environments. I don't know that there's massive ideological difference in the positions so much as a little bit more or a little bit different kind of freedom in divinity departments in the UK to speak in ways that could be perceived as first order or, or making theological claims rather than offering sort of second order analysis of uh, theological claims in the way that most of Fry and Lindbeck's work reflects. So I see in some ways that as a major difference. And then correspondingly, there, there's a multi-religious environment in the UK now in divinity departments um, with scriptural reasoning and other kinds of practices and engagements that shape uh, the work of Moberly and others that wouldn't be impossible necessarily at Yale now, but were not happening at Yale um, in the 80s um, when some of the key Yale school works were being written. So part of it is a generational uh, difference, I think. And then um, to say a word about Durham, Durham is a tricky place to characterize too, because uh, you have Moberly as an Old Testament scholar or a scholar of Israel's scriptures, which is a designation he favors that I think is actually very 
helpful, better than uh, Hebrew Bible or First Testament or some of the other, uh, I think, really problematic options on offer. You got Moberly, you got Richard Briggs, who is very hermeneutically sophisticated and an Old Testament uh, scholar. But you've also got Francis uh, Watson uh, on the NT side. And uh, Francis is, uh, we might say, a moving target um, hermeneutically, or he refers in a recent essay to the, the journey, mm. you know, um, of his intellectual career. And so I think it would be hard to say that, um, you know, Francis has had a kind of consistent position all through. He hasn't. Um, he's been finding elements of his positions all through. And I think his position has come closer to Moberly's, perhaps because of collegial interaction. Um, and then you've got John Barclay, who doesn't fly the TIS flag, but is obviously interacting with colleagues and students mm -hmm. who have sympathies for that. So all of that uh, rambling on to say, I, I think the, the Yale folks were shaped by Bart in a kind of first American generation way. Childs, um, Brian Lindbeck, and Kelsey, in different ways and to different degrees, wrestling with the hermeneutical legacy of Bart in a Niebuhr-soaked American university environment. Paul DeHart's work on Fry and Lindbeck is very good at that. I think Moberly, um, Barclay, um, um, Briggs are not particularly shaped by Bart. Hmm. Um, Moberly is shaped by Childs and wrestling with his legacy. And so there you get a sense that we've moved a half generation to a generation forward. Mm -hmm. um, and then Watson is shaped by Bart in his earlier work, but partially at least repents of that in his most recent essay. So Durham is, is partly a half generation to a generation onward. It's a UK rather than an earlier US context. And it is just a less Bart haunted and not Niebuhr haunted yeah. kind of place. If you could say, you know, somebody wants to be introduced to these two schools, would you say Fry's Eclipse of Biblical Narrative would be a good way to get into it uh, on the Yale side? Uh, would you say something else? And then what would you say maybe for the Durham School? Somebody's trying to get a good flavor for kind of what, what those two look like. You have to read something by Childs mm -hmm. or an article about Childs's canonical approach, maybe even by Seitz, his, his disciple. You need to read the first and last chapters maybe of Eclipse of Biblical Narrative. And then Lindbeck's bit on intratextuality in the nature of doctrine. Lindbeck's got a couple of essays, the story-shaped church or something like that, but he's got a couple of essays like excerpted in Fowles TIS Reader. Then for Durham, where would you go for, for some intro? Well, I would actually start with the recent symposium in the Journal of Theological Interpretation because yeah. you get Watson's sort of panoptic reflection on his earlier career, and that's a helpful place to begin. Uh, with Moberly, any number of, you know, chapter length examples would give you the flavor uh, or a couple of his JTI articles, I think, would be the place to go, probably. 
by the way, that JTI, the Journal of Theological Interpretation, that's uh, volume 14, issue one that came out last year for, for those that are listening. So if you want to go uh, look that up, that's Wesley Hill's In Defense of Doctrinal Exegesis. I loved uh, in that. That was, I think, maybe where I was the most being like, amen, 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 you know, throughout. So, um, okay. So, so I where are you? a different essay to amen, but I also appreciate Wes's. Yeah. Well, which one would you, which one would you like to amen? I think, I think Grant McCaskill's had a lot mm. of, a lot of analytical value. Yeah. And but, Watson's is interesting because it helps to explain where some of the trajectories wound up. Yeah, that's good. That's good. Uh, okay. So we, we've, uh, one of the things that we've been reflecting on a lot is the Wycliffe colloquium and, and the sort of the eulogy for the Brazos series uh, for which you have contributed uh, one volume, right? Proverbs. Yeah. There's another one I'm missing. Okay. Ecclesiastes, yes. yeah, together. Um, so uh, you are an author. You watched the colloquium. You've, you've had some time to kind of think about that and gather some thoughts. So what are your thoughts on kind of coming into that series, how that series has gone, where you think the conversation's gone, where, you know, why is the series where it's at? What are some of your reflections if you could have been on the panel there and, and, and given some thoughts? Yeah, I really appreciated Laura Smith's um, description of what it was like to be an author in this series. Uh, particularly, you know, as a more junior or less prominent um, scholar who then was trying to, you know, figure out our way forward. I also appreciated Dave Nelson's bringing in of a publisher's perspective. I'm incompetent enough with time zones that I missed most of Rusty Reno's talk, but I could predict and kind of reconstruct what was probably in it. I do think when you put the difficulties that authors faced. And I started that project when I was in my fourth or fifth year of teaching before I had actually published a book of my own. Mm. So, you know, it was on the early side of my career. When When you combine the difficulties that authors faced in just figuring out what we were supposed to do with the the publisher's situation, I think probably Brazos could have been a little bit more direct with us about just how crucial it was uh, to hit our deadlines, that it wasn't just a matter of like keeping things going smoothly and making money, but that actually the series' viability probably depended on it. Um, at, At the one author breakfast that I can remember, you know, they were certainly giving us the sales pitch for prioritizing our deadlines, but they didn't give us the kind of apocalyptic doom scenario of what would happen if we, if we didn't. Mm-hmm. And I would say also, I'm not sure they were, the series editors or the publisher was realistic enough about how difficult it would be to recruit the number of authors they would need and to retain and sustain them. So shameless plug time for just a second. When Kevin Van Hooser and I um, started the Studies in Christian Doctrine and Scripture series, which uh, there's a certain volume uh, coming forth in within the next, what, year, year and a half, maybe, Brandon? Hopefully. hopefully when will yeah. your volume be done and ready to? Uh, anyway. Yeah, we'll see. Um, breaking, breaking news on the on the podcast there, so. Oh, is that breaking news? Have we not gone public with that yet? Well, it, it's gone public, but I, I try not to uh, to self-promo on the podcast. So I appreciate you throwing okay. me that softball. Well, let, I let am me trying to it. promote it 
both uh, to sell it and to pressure you to finish the revision. <laughs> um, shameless, but, but in all seriousness, we, we sat down uh, with the IVP folks at a stage of that process and said, how many authors do we think, semi-established to established authors, do we think could actually do the kind of work that we distinctly want to publish in this series? And our list was no longer than 30 to 40 people. So we were very realistic about, okay, we're not going to get most of those folks. They've got contracts, you know, already for their next books, or um, some of them said, you know, I'm not in book writing mode right now. So, you know, we hoped to snag three to five of them maybe, and then publish the doctoral students um, first or early books and thereby be able to do a volume or two uh, per year. But we were pretty realistic and sober about that. And I, I think the Brazos commentary probably was a little over-optimistic. So some of those just nuts and bolts details need to be taken into account. But in terms of actual value I can add here, I would talk a little more about editorial perspective. Rusty had very specific things that he wanted and that he didn't want. And so when I send in my manuscript, probably 10 to 15,000 words, which would be like around 10% of the, uh, of the first draft was cut out. And what Rusty particularly wanted cut out was engagement with grammatical historical detail <laughs> and with um, literature in biblical studies. And uh, so there's a sense in which the model for Rusty was not both and, it was either or. Mm -hmm. It wasn't, let's see how the Nicene theological tradition can enhance a commentary theologically that, say, pastors and, and others you know, would want to read and find value in. It was, let's see what the Nicene theological tradition can distinctively do in a commentary, almost to the exclusion of certain kinds of philological um, wrestling with the text and the existing scholarly literature. And to a point that makes it distinctively helpful, right? But past a certain point, in some volumes made people ask, is this really a commentary on the text or is it something else? Is it a companion to the text, but not a commentary on the text or something mm -hmm. like that? And, you know, Rusty's rather aggressive series preface certainly shaped how people read and reviewed the series. You can just read review after review where the first paragraph or two is basically picking a fight with Rusty's series <laughs> preface rather than actually dealing with the uh, commentary. At some points, even, you know, I got 14 pages of single-spaced feedback from Rusty on my volume. And what was interesting was the other um, member of the series editor board's feedback that was sent to me, in some cases, seemed to me to conflict even with Rusty on certain points of wanting some elements of historical analysis, particularly of Ecclesiastes, actually to be in there that it seemed to me Rusty would have wanted to cut out. So then it's like, you know, which do you choose? Mm -hmm. 
it might seem like I'm picking a fight with Rusty, and in some ways I am. I, I would say that the fact that later volumes in the series often have more evangelical authors is not an accident. There's a sense in which the series was generated to help post-liberal mainline Protestants as a kind of core Yale sort of audience wrestle with the Bible and do theology with the Bible again and the tradition. And there's a sense in which evangelicals who were comfortable with, you know, expository preaching and the like, we, we knew what to do with parts of the task. For us, it was how do we integrate that with the Nicene theological tradition in distinctive ways. But we knew how to write a commentary as an extension of preaching or whatever else. But I think, you know, somebody like Rusty had been an Episcopalian at the start of the series, was a Catholic not too long into the series, and neither uh, the Episcopal Church nor the Catholic Church is, you know, renowned for um, traditions of expository preaching. <laughs> and so I think that this was in some ways um, an alien an alien genre for some of the authors they were trying to recruit. And they eventually realized, well, if we can get the right evangelicals, and there were only a couple of us invited in at the early stages, um, you know, if we can get the right evangelicals, well, at least they're used to dealing with the Bible. So maybe they can add the theological component in, but, but have it be more native to them to deal with the Bible. Now, I've droned on a long time, but let me say one positive thing quickly regarding Rusty as an editor. Rusty changed my theological career as a writer and as a PhD supervisor in important ways from his editorial feedback. He got me out of, or started, maybe I should say, to get me out of just citing lots of authorities and providing lots of um, quotations that weren't really adding distinctively to the theological argument or reflecting my distinctive theological voice. So the crucible of that editing was worth its weight in gold, mm -hmm. even if I have some evangelical ideological um, nits to pick with it. Yeah. So that's where the, um, the Van Hooser trier school that I keep, keep uh, bringing up comes in. That's where the, uh, and again, I know you're, you're not going to attach your, you're not going to uh, spearhead yourself a school uh, in the movement uh, or the not movement uh, of TIS, but um, that is where I appreciate the work you've done and what Van Hooser have done. And when I look at that IVP series you brought up, um, you know, I, I told you it was like my first choice for my dissertation. That, that, I mean, when I saw that series come out, um, that I was just going like, this is what I'm doing, basically, or at least what I'm trying to do. Hopefully I'm doing this well. Um, and so that series, in some sense, uh, in your mind, not obviously not a replacement for the Brazos series, but that's kind of where you and Van Hooser can sort of work out some of these distinctives. Would, would you say that in terms of, of how you, you want some of these things actually get fleshed out and looked at uh, in the biblical text? Is that fair? We have to separate issues into genre issues and into kind of um, convictions issues. So yeah. genre-wise, it's not a replacement for a commentary series, but it is highlighting that a theological commentary series is only one component of TIS. And I think I've concluded not probably the primary genre in which TIS is going to land. So the most important TIS work, I think, has probably come out in book chapters, 
um, and therefore in similarly sized journal articles, and occasionally in monographs, either dissertation monographs that are doing really detailed versions of what those book chapters or journal articles might do, such as your own, um, or in monographs that are collections of book chapters, which is where Walter Moberly uh, so often publishes his work. Mm -hmm. Now, all of that suggests that on the genre side, TIS is still more academic than churchly, right? If journal articles and um, monographs of certain types and book chapters wind up being the native habitat, then that makes TIS more uh, academic than churchly. Mm -hmm. So there's probably some regret in that, right? Because if it were making the church more directly the home of this exegesis, then we would hope that the commentary would be more prominent and successful as a genre. But I think, you know, to one of Rusty's points that I actually heard, the Brazos project and others have been moderately successful at getting theologians to be able to write on the Bible in a sustained way. And the commentary genre, obviously, to one degree or another, forces that, right? Hauerwas may not have done what you wanted him to on Matthew, but he wrote more about Matthew as a result of doing the Brazos volume <laughs> than he would have otherwise. Yeah. And, uh, the same is true for Yaroslav Pelikan's volume, which I want to defend as a commentary against some of the, the naysayers, a certain kind of commentary, but I think it still qualifies as a commentary. And for some of the rest of us, the discipline of writing a commentary and, and having the ability to write that in some ways to and for the church, but having it count as published theological scholarship is no small thing, and it's an opportunity that wouldn't have been possible 10 years before the Brazos um, series. Right. But in terms of convictions, I think the SCDS reflects Kevin and me trying to get more evangelical theologians, such as yourself, to write um, constructive theological arguments engaging the Bible in a serious way. So that your dissertation doesn't have to be speaking indirectly through BART on X topic, right? Mm -hmm. And 75% of the volume is doing the chugging through of BART on that topic. And then you sort of stick a chapter or a chapter and a half on the end and say, well, here's what I think we can learn from BART on that topic. Or even still indirectly, here's how BART on that topic has been received you know, and interacted with by um, subsequent scholars, uh, whole series and very good series, lots of very good volumes in them that I learned a ton from uh, are oriented that way. But we just realized as we were having doc, uh, doctoral students uh, finish, they had nowhere in the mainstream uh, academic theological world to publish a constructive theological monograph that interpreted scripture in a really serious way. Mm -hmm. They could only do sort of indirect figure-oriented theological arguments. And so in that sense, we wanted to provide a venue for TIS to shape theological arguments beyond just writing for a theological commentary series. Yeah, that makes sense. All right, so if we could, uh, if I asked Madison this, I asked Chad this, I'm going to ask you this. 
if TIS is going to continue as a conversation or whatever we want to call it, uh, <laughs> one, are you, uh, are you happy for that to still exist? Or would you rather just kind of scrap the label and just talk about theological exegesis or something? Are you, are you still wanting to hold on to the label? And if so, what does that look like? What would you like to see that happen? Or if not, uh, what would be your reason for just kind of moving on from it? Yeah, I have mixed uh, feelings about that. Um, so on one hand, I think it's convenient to keep the label because for all of the jokes about, would somebody please define it? Or what are we even talking about? There is a kind of know it when you see it quality to it, or at least know what conversation we're in and who's in it uh, quality to it that's useful. And again, it provides a certain kind of cover under which uh, theologians can publish in broader academic venues more sustained work with the Bible than they could do in the 1990s and before. So in that sense, I would say keep the label at least for accomplishing that kind of purpose of engaging a wider scholarly venue with serious theological work on the Bible from the theology side and from the Bible side, I suppose, um, kind of nudging or even stronger than nudging biblical scholars to do uh, theologically inflected work or at least to come clean about theological elements of their work. So that's the kind of keep the label argument. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, I, I do think that there's a degree to which as I tried to point out in a, a journal article in 2010 or so, and as the Wycliffe uh, Symposium suggests, TIS's fortunes were significantly overlapping with quote-unquote post-liberalism. Mm. And to the degree that post-liberalism has partly disintegrated and partly mainstreamed, uh, so that we don't need to refer to it as distinct anymore because in some ways, we're all post-liberal now, and in other ways, the post-liberal project is dead, thanks to the implosion of mainline denominations over sexu uh, sexuality and the like. Um, if the post-liberal project is dead, then the TIS um, project or um, the, the boundaries of that conversation are are probably uh, wounded or at least uh, redrawn. Mm -hmm. That's mixing metaphors uh, in a very substantial way, sorry. <laughs> um, so in that sense, I'm not particularly attached to the label, but it's a little bit like the label evangelical. It's got huge problems, particularly at the moment, uh, huge problems of definition of PR and all the rest. But as Billy Abraham likes to say, if you got rid of it, you would immediately need to invent its equivalent. So right. I'm not sure how much use there is in inventing its equivalent. Yeah, that makes sense. All right, so last thing I want to talk about here, we, um, you are kind of working on a response to these two books that IVP has put out recently. Uh, Scott McKnight's Five Things Biblical Scholars Wish Theologians Knew. Then Han Boersma has five things theologians wish biblical scholars knew. So you can have a biblical scholar speaking to a theologian and vice versa about their two uh, respective disciplines. And you're kind of crafting a uh, response to that. So that is a helpful, I think, in this whole conversation, right, about 
the relationship between theology and scripture. Uh, Ched brought it up, you know, how do you define theological? How do you define interpretation? How do you define, define scripture? Yes. So that's a big part of this conversation that I think is helpful. And again, where I hope to see, you know, TIS go, if it continues to be a thing, what are your thoughts on that? As you're thinking through these two books have come out, the relationship between the Bible and theology and kind of what are your, you know, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah. So um, the books read well, and they do represent accurately and also forcefully tendencies of biblical scholars and theologians. And so to one degree, CT, which asked me to do this, um, you know, sees this as an opportunity to introduce the wider world to here's what biblical scholars and theologians do. Here's how they think. Maybe it's time for some stock taking of um, what a generation and a half or two of evangelical, biblical, and theological scholarship um, means. So I've I've tried to use the books in some ways as an occasion for that stock taking that they've asked for. I also try to point out in the draft of the piece, and by the way, this may never see the light of day if the editors say. That was not what we actually asked you to do, Trier. So uh, who knows? I haven't uh, yet um, found out what they what they think of the draft. But um, it, it will exist here at least. So if nothing else, you know. Well, yeah, this. people will know that it could have happened at least. <laughs> um, but hopefully, on newsstands in September. Do we have newsstands anymore? Anyway, um, somewhere there are, I'm sure. Yeah, um, the online equivalent of newsstands, I suppose. Um, uh, hopefully, hitting the streets uh, in September. <laughs> but. Uh, as of this date, um, we, we don't know for sure. But I do point out that with, with uh, Scott and Hans, uh, who are both uh, friends of mine, you get very strong and particular versions of these thoughts as well. So Scott pushes narrative emphasis and a lived theology emphasis very heavily and does not have particularly nice things to say about sola scriptura, biblicism, and other kinds of things that I'm committed to in one form or another. And similarly, Hans pushes uh, Christian Platonism, sacramental ontology, and the like right. very strongly. And so he winds up with a view of scripture and tradition in the book that is at least as Eastern Orthodox-like as it is Protestant, if not more so. And he's pretty open about it. So I wind up, you know, needing to say in the piece, yes, this represents tendencies of biblical scholars and theologians. It lets us review the history of, of evangelicals uh, entering these spheres and be profoundly grateful for how far we've come. But many evangelicals, if not most evangelicals in these fields, still hold some version of sola scriptura, which both of these authors disavow in these books. And to that degree, they're not entirely representative mm -hmm. um, of, of the evangelical uh, state of the field, and we need to grapple with that too. We need to grapple with what popular problems would lead someone to wonder about quote-unquote sola scriptura, yeah. Um, in the ways that Scott and Hans do, but we also need, I think, to grapple with the fact that these um, chapters are written by um, people who, in some respects, disavow something that's pretty important to our evangelical heritage. Yeah, part, part of doing the book like this is you do have to get to kind of uh, 
extremes for lack of a better word to, to show the, you know, if you have two people that basically agree, uh, it's not going to be as obvious, but for evangelicals, oftentimes we probably do kind of fall in between the two kind of extremes or poles that you're going to see in these two little books, I would think. Yeah. Well, is there anything else that you wanted to uh, just kind of reflect on from Wycliffe, from TIS, anything like that, that you, that you had there that you wanted to think about? I think we'll conclude the, uh, the TIS uh, three-part series here with this. So as the elder statesman, as one of the uh, <laughs> f- the four horsemen of the TIS apocalypse, <laughs> what are your? Uh, I think you just called me old. Uh, el- elder statesman, you know, older than me. You know, it's all relative, you know. So you know, there there are right. others. Although I think, uh, you know, I don't have a beard, but you've got a fair bit of gray going there. So yeah. maybe you maybe you are getting mature and and wise and and so on. Well, that's what um, the beard is for—is to pretend that way. That, that's that's it's yeah, all a well, show. Yeah, that's that's fair enough. Uh, you know, when I read uh, Francis Watson's latest essay, he sort of defines his version of TIS now, and I think this is somewhat more broadly representative of the Durham School, that, that on, on his account, TIS is not specifically confessional or Trinitarian necessarily. It's just in some way insightfully engaging the theological subject matter of the text um, maybe from someone who doesn't adhere to a particular confessional or Trinitarian perspective, uh, maybe from someone who's not even necessarily religious, but who can enter sympathetically into the potential theological insight that the text has to offer. Mm-hmm. And that, that combined with the reality that many TIS folks early on wanted to say um, at some level, everybody's interpretation is theological whether they know it or not, whether they like it or not, if you're wrestling with texts that have theological subject matter and texts that we would say are word of God, then uh, to some degree, your exegesis is theological, uh, whether you um, own up to that or not. This leads me to think that we probably need some kind of multi-level scale of what we mean when we put the adjective theological next to the word interpretation or exegesis. Mm -hmm. And I think interpretation is broader and exegesis is narrower and more technical, just as a handy way of um, distinguishing what we might be talking about. But that aside, I think we need some kind of multi-level scale probably. So the lowest level would be the uh, theological is inevitable, like Mm -hmm. it or not. The mid-level would be Watson and the kind of Durhamish approach from inevitable up to insightful uh, forms of theologically insightful engagement with texts, whether you adhere confessionally or not uh, to certain kinds of religious commitments. And then I think the third level would be something like intentional. So from inevitable up to insightful up to intentional, you know, theological exegesis that is intentionally Trinitarian, maybe even confessional. Mm-hmm. And I'm happy to interact with folks that are operating at all three levels, but I'm in some ways trying to promote intentionally theological and intentionally theological from an evangelical uh, perspective, ultimately exegesis of scripture, while realizing that at times there will be blind spots there, given social locations and other realities that Madison pointed out. There'll be blind spots there, and there'll be lots of other reasons um, 
by common grace and ecumenical grace that we should interact with people and expect to learn from people at the other levels. I think ultimately um, I'm invested in promoting healthy, intentional TIS. At least that's the way that the recent interaction would lead me to think about it. Yeah, that's helpful. All right, Dan, well, thanks for being willing to come on. Uh, we had a bunch of, you know, uh, not to call you old again, but you know, younger scholars, we'll, we'll say uh, junior scholars that were, you know, just kind of bantering things about, uh, but it's good. It's good to hear from, from a uh, seasoned wise young man as yourself, uh, who is, yeah, you're who is kind to let the old codger come on and ramble on for uh, 45 minutes. Well, the, the new media that you, that you have the most disdain for, or that you're, you're most uh, begrudgingly jumping onto is text and podcast. And I'm, I am uh, intent on forcing you to love both. So I appreciate you appreciate your willingness to do that. As long as it adds to the sales of the old media. I'm <laughs> All right. Thanks, Dan. <laughs>